If you don't think there are two justice systems in the United States, let me give you an example, and it involves Sam Bankman-Fried. People are flocking to Moscow, Idaho. Is it weird for the reason? Athena Strand's alleged killer gets some new charges added to his problems. Jurors come to a verdict for the interior designer charged with murdering her stepfather, and then our dumb criminal of the day. Let's talk about it. Good day, my name is Scott Reich and this is Crime Talk. You know the drill, subscribe if you haven't, like if you do, leave me a comment below and make sure you hit that little bell so you receive notifications of when we go live or put up new content. And remember, you can listen to us on any of your favorite podcasting apps as well, just simply type in Crime Talk. Let's go ahead and open the record and start the docket for Wednesday, December 22nd, 2022. Now, if you've ever thought that there were two justice systems in the United States, those for the the wealthy and the rich and powerful and everybody else. Well, let me give you an example and why you should be offended. So the FTX founder, Sam Bankman-Fried, you know, the guy that's accused of stealing billions of dollars and defrauding people out of just as much money, guess what? He is being released on a $250 million personal recognizance bond. What does that mean? Yes, the man who is an accused fraudster who lies to people is getting released with simply his promise to appear and his signature. That's right. Now, he will be restricted and is confined to his parents' Palo Alto, California home. Can you imagine? Oh, the punishment of it all. So the federal magistrate judge said uh, today that the uh, now disgraced former executive uh, at his first appearance in New York federal court after he was extradited from the Bahamas, that's right, where he was flown via private jet late Wednesday night after he waived um, his extradition uh, hearing there in the Bahamas. And that's right, he's flown on a Gulfstream, a Gulfstream 550. He didn't get a simple transport that could take days or weeks to get back. I get it. They want to make sure he's there. But if they knew they were going to release him, what was the rush to send him back via private aircraft, a Gulfstream 550, for goodness sakes? When my clients have been extradited back, they get a ride in a van, and it takes weeks to get to where they need to go. Well, what can you say? Maybe I'm just a little too cynical. So under this uh, bail arrangement, Mr. Freed will live with his parents, like I said, in Palo Alto, Northern California. Can you imagine? The stress he's going to be under. Well, he's going to have to wear an electronic uh, bracelet, and uh, he can't leave his home, and that's going to be put on him before he leaves the courthouse. And like I said, the judge said that the $250 million personal recognizance bond, which is simply a written promise to appear in court, will be secured by his parents' interest in their home. He is also required to surrender his passport and receive a mental health and substance abuse uh, evaluation and any treatment that is recommended. And any expense over $1,000 would have to be approved by the government prior to engaging in that. Now, the judge, and I'm not really going to, you know, fault the judge here for this because the government agreed, but the judge could have said no. The judge, Gabriel Gornstein, 
warned Mr. Bankman-Fried that if he failed to appear in court or violated any other conditions, a warrant would issue for his arrest and his uh, parents would be responsible for paying the hefty bond. Yeah, $250 million, really? Like they've got that money just hanging around somehow, I doubt it. Now, when uh, Mr. Bankman-Fried was asked whether he understood, he responded to the court, yes, I do. And those were the only words that he said during the entire hearing. Apparently, the discussions about bail uh, had begun even before Mr. Bankman-Fried was extradited from the Bahamas. And in court Thursday, the deal was formally proposed by the United States prosecutors in the Southern District of New York, who brought the charges against Mr. Bankman-Fried. Now, Bankman-Fried was brought into court and he was there with his attorney, a guy by the name of Mark Cohen and Kristen Everdell. Mr. Cohen argued that Mr. Bankman-Fried was not a flight risk. He says that his client voluntarily consented to come and face these charges, like he had a choice in it, really? And Mr. Cohen said that Mr. Bankman-Fried would like to address these charges. And Nicholas Roos, the assistant United States attorney, said that Mr. Bankman-Fried had committed crimes of epic proportions and that the case against him involved multiple cooperating witnesses, so it's not like it's a weak case for the government, as well as there being encrypted text messages and tens of thousands of pages of financial records that go directly to Mr. Bankman-Fried's guilt. But he noted that Mr. Bankman-Fried had a very nice family and significant community ties. You mean the guy that lived offshore? Yeah, it's not like he lived in the community in the Southern District of New York, no. He was in the Bahamas for the whole purpose to avoid regulation and trying to be extradited back to the United States until he really realized there was no other option. And the United States attorney had also said, well, you know, his uh, wealth had diminished significantly. It'd be very difficult for Mr. Bankman Free to hide without being recognized, uh, the judge said. So he believed that his uh, risk of a flight risk has been appropriately mitigated. Um, Next time I'm in court and um, my client is accused of possession of some narcotics um, that carries a mandatory 10 to life sentence, and there's a presumption that they're a flight risk and a danger to the community, I think I'm going to cite the Bankman Freed case that, hey, you can maybe steal a couple billion dollars and you're not really greater risk as the guy that sold or maybe possessed a firearm and some guns. Really, there's no difference. And even if the guy robbed a bank, you know, there's a presumption of innocence that he's a danger to the community. What's the difference between Mr. Bankman Freed, who defrauded people out of their money, and a guy that walks into the bank and says, give me all your money with a firearm? Really not that much a difference. Unless, of course, there's two real justice systems that are going on here. You decide. Tell me in the comments if you think it's fair. Now, for those who don't know, Mr. Bankman Freed, who likes to be known as SBF, was charged with engaging in criminal conduct that contributed to the crypto exchanges collapse. And um, he now faces numerous charges, which he's looking at at least 110 years. The court didn't formally enter a not guilty plea, which sometimes can take place at a detention slash arraignment hearing for some unknown reason. Normally what takes place is at first appearance, there's a detention and arraignment hearing because 
an arraignment takes place because the indictment has already been handed down by the grand jury. So perhaps the United States attorney and Mr. Sam Bankman-Fried and his attorney are going to go in and proffer and see what kind of deal that they can work out. But normally the not guilty plea is entered. The matter is then sent up to the trial judge. The trial judge will set a trial date. And then the defense and the prosecution would have to move for an ends of justice continuance so that they could review the discovery and see how they need to proceed in the case. Apparently that's not the case for Mr. Sam Bankman-Fried. Hmm. Just funny how that's all working out. Now, as you may recall, Mr. Bankman-Fried um, last week appeared in court, said he was going to fight extradition. Then he changed his mind over the weekend. Then he didn't change his mind. But then yesterday he finally agreed to waive extradition. It's not a big complicated thing. It just simply says, I'm the person that's being charged. You fight extradition if you say, that's not me. Why would I go back if that's not me? So then they have an identity hearing. It's not that big of a deal. And while Mr. Bankman-Fried um, was on the Gulfstream 550 en route to New York, the United States attorney announced that uh, two of Sam Bankman-Fried's closest associates had pled guilty to, well, the similar charges and offenses that Mr. Sam Bankman-Fried is charged with. Oh, and guess what? One little thing. They're already cooperating, and they're not even in jail either. That's right. Caroline Ellison, the former chief executive of the crypto trading firm Almeida Research, pled guilty to seven criminal counts, and the former FTX chief technology officer Gary Wang pled guilty to four counts according to their plea agreements. Their cooperation with investigators likely strengthens, obviously, the case against Mr. Sam Bankman-Fried, who is accused of defrauding customers, lenders, and investors, and ultimately put FTX officials uh, that he worked with in peril as well. So the fact that uh, the two insiders' uh, accounts and documents upon which they could rely at any future trial certainly doesn't help Mr. Sam Bankman-Fried's uh, possibilities. Now, normally I would say Sam Bankman-Fried should probably get used to making himself comfortable in a prison cell, which would have taken place if he had been detained, if the government had asked for it. But they didn't. They didn't. Unbelievable. Ladies and gentlemen, if you were accused of stealing millions of dollars, let alone billions of dollars, mark my word, you would be in custody. You would be deemed a flight risk. So, Documents released today uh, show that Ms. Ellison and Mr. Wang pled guilty to participating in a scheme to defraud FTX customers from 2019 through November 2020 by misappropriating customer deposits and lending them to Almeida. Ms. Ellison also admitted to participating in a scheme to defraud Almeida lenders by providing false information about its financial condition. She and Mr. Wang also pled guilty to misleading FTX investors. And the Manhattan United States Attorney, Damian Williams, made a video statement Wednesday night that the investigation into FTX was ongoing, and he urged anyone who participated in the conduct at FTX to come forward soon. We're moving quickly, and our patience is not eternal, he said. Now, a lawyer for Ms. Ellison declined to comment after her guilty plea was announced, and a lawyer for Mr. Wang said that his client took his obligations as a cooperating witness very seriously. He should, otherwise there's no deal. And whatever sentencing recommendation that the prosecution is going to make goes away as well.
So as you may uh, recall, Ms. Ellison and Mr. Wang have ties to Mr. Bankman-Fried that predate his founding of FTX. Ms. Ellison and Mr. Bankman-Fried worked together at Jane Street, a quantitative trading firm, and were once romantically involved. Mr. Wang and Mr. Bankman-Fried were in the same co-ed living group at uh, MIT. The uh, Securities and Exchange Commission and the Commodities Future Trading Commission also filed lawsuits against Mr. Ellison and Mr. Wang, against Ms. Ellison and Mr. Wang late Wednesday for their role in defrauding FTX investors. Both agreed to settle the SEC and the CFTCS's claim and to accept liability, according to the regulators, an amount to be determined in the future. Mr. Bankman-Fried is also charged with conspiring with others to make illegal campaign contributions. Uh, Mr. Williams said that Mr. Bankman-Fried made political contributions that looked like they were coming from wealthy associates when in reality they were funded by Almeda with money from stolen customer funds. Mr. Bankman-Fried personally donated $40 million to political campaigns and committees, mostly to Democrats. And before somebody says, oh, Scott, you're not telling them they donated to Republicans. That's right, he donated some money to the Republicans, but most of the $40 million went to Democrats. I'm just giving you the facts. So FTX's new management has said that it will do whatever it can to recoup campaign contributions made by Mr. Sam Bankman-Fried and other FTX executives to pay back creditors. So I wouldn't be so worried about current FTX. I would be more worried about the bankruptcy trustee that has tremendous power to claw back money. So all those congressmen and women that we talked about who had received money from all SBF and FTX, and they said that they donated that money to a charity, guess what? Get ready to write another check because the bankruptcy trustee cometh. I don't know, ladies and gentlemen, Sam Bankman-Fried got a gift for the holiday season, no doubt. Let me know. Do you really think that you would have got such consideration? I don't know. Maybe it's his family. Maybe it's political connections. I don't know. Certainly makes you wonder and scratch your head and say, wow, are there really two forms of a justice system here in the United States? I think it's a pretty good example of yes. The house that's the site of the quadruple stabbing has begun to draw true crime buffs and uh, some curiosity and a belief that these people can help solve the crime. Now, the house where the University of Idaho students were murdered has become a tourist attraction in Moscow, Idaho. Visitors apparently stopped by to get a glimpse of the home there where Kaylee Gonsalves, Madison Mogan, um, and their two roommates, Zaina Kernodal and her boyfriend, Ethan Chapin, uh, were killed back in November of, of this year. I don't know if it's weird or creepy. I know every time I go to Boulder, Colorado, uh, we usually meet family and friends at uh, Chautauqua Park, which is literally a stone's throw away to the residence where Jean Benet was murdered. And every time it seems like we drive by, I'm like, hey, isn't that the Jean Benet house? Yeah, it is. We don't stop and take pictures or anything like that, but you know, you're certainly like, oh, there it is. So I don't know. I get it. Curiosity. People want to see it. Well, as of right now, no one um, knows what will become of the uh, house um, as this case remains unsolved. Will it be demolished or rebuilt? Will it be turned into some sort of memorial? Uh, will it be cleaned up and basically re-rented uh, next semester? My guess is it's a college town. People will be like, I don't care. 
I'll stay there. Would you? And uh, the two men that uh, own the residence, clearly it's a rental property, and we're not going to mention their names. They are keeping their mouth shuts. Uh, apparently, people have tried to talk with them, but they have no comment whatsoever. And frankly, that's okay. Why would they have to comment? It's it's a rental property. And as of right now, investigators have uh, still uh, contracted a private security firm to keep an eye on the house. And uh, police tape is uh, still surrounding the property, even though uh, the roommate's belongings have been uh, moved out and the police say that they've finished their forensic investigation of the murder scene, taking blood, hair, and fingerprint samples. Um, they obviously took a lot of uh, photographs, uh, bagged other items that could hold a piece of DNA uh, that can hopefully lead to the uh, killer being found. Like I said, the boxes have all been removed. Everything, personal items are out. Uh, so you just never know. But as things are being investigated, seems like this house where the quadruple murder took place was quite the party scene. Apparently people just come on by and party. And uh, some body cam video has been released of showing this. So about two months before the slains, some body cam video has been released. Officers uh, went to the house after a neighbor complained back in September uh, of a noise violation, but none of the students who actually lived at the home were home. Instead, officers were faced with a gathering of a bunch of young people who didn't even know who the occupants of the home were while this party was going on. Across the street, I just came over. I haven't drank a drop. Male? Female? Uh, I think it's mainly females. I think okay. it's like four What females. sorority are they affiliated with? I uh, don't know. I don't, yeah, you I don't do. Know I don't know if they're associated with the... I don't know. So I guarantee you they're associated with the sorority. As many of them are living here, it's an off-campus campus sorority house. I've been a cop for 22 years here. I'm not stupid. Don't play dumb games with me. Now take a look at the, the body cam uh, video. It shows about 9 p.m. on September 1st. It shows an officer eventually managing to contact one of the murder victims, 21-year-old Maddie Mogan, on the phone. All right, can you hear me, Maddie? Yes, I can hear you. Okay. Do you live at 1122 uh, Queen Street? Yes, I do. Okay. So, hey, the reason that we're here is that we received a noise complaint um, of live music, partying, okay? Once we approached the, the house, uh, people started running away. Uh, they left a bunch of alcohol behind. We're not even coming for alcohol. We're coming for the noise complaint. And then we sat here for approximately 10 minutes trying to knock on the door, and no one would come to the door until these two gentlemen came down and actually entered the door. She apologized to the police officer and says that she'll return home um, or obviously she'll face even more problems. The video also reveals how many people were able to enter the home, a known party spot, and it comes to the police continue uh, to struggle for clues that could leave them to a killer. Obviously, a lot of people had access to this place. So this video shows the police officer. He arrives at the house about 8.55 p.m. and initially speaks to a woman outside who says that she doesn't know who the occupants of the home are. The officer knocks on the door and a woman answers the door and tells them she'll go get the tenants before she shuts the door behind her on the officer. But after no success and with the party still underway, the officers are forced to walk around the house to find another door. Obviously they just can't go in, right? So at one point, a downstairs bedroom can be seen in the footage. And soon after that, an officer bangs on the door again and shouts, we're only here for a noise complaint. Come to the damn door. Another officer adds, whoever lives here needs to come talk to us or we're gonna start doing a lot more. 
two young men come to the door and say, none of the occupants are home, despite the party inside. One of the young men uh, denies anybody is trespassing and adds that the people that live here left and went over to some other party, and everyone here is about ready to leave to go to that party. One man said he's unsure of the names of the people who live at the house at all. Later, the footage reveals the moment uh, one of the officers spoke uh, to Miss Mogan on the phone, and he says, we're not even coming for alcohol. We're coming for the noise. And he says they sat out there for about 10 minutes trying to knock on the door, and no one would come down until these two guys came down and actually answered the door. Mogan gives her details, including her name and address, and the officer responds, all right, Madison, so here's the deal. They've already said no one here was like none of the occupants at the address are here. So now you have a house full of random people. If you let them know that the noise needs to come down, we just received a noise complaint. We want the music turned down and we don't want to come back again tonight. If we have to come back, then there's going to be problems. Okay. Mogan apologizes and the officer tells her, if I were you, I'd probably just come down and make sure whoever's partying here is keeping it down to a minimum. But what is the significance of this, ladies and gentlemen? If that many people had access to the house, think about it. Any DNA that is recovered from that house, one, assuming you know it's a student, could simply say, or anybody, I guess, could say, I was there for a party. Of course my DNA was there. I touched things. I did, I, I was there. Didn't mean I killed anybody in the night in question. You can't say when that DNA got there. Certainly makes it interesting. Let me know what you think. Next on the docket. Remember that Texas FedEx driver accused of kidnapping and strangling a seven-year-old girl that he abducted from her Dallas home? Well, he's got some more charges. It goes back almost a decade. Well, that guy, we'll give him the presumption of innocence, Tanner Horner. Now, he told investigators that he accidentally hit Athena Strand with his FedEx truck back in November of this year, and that he panicked, and then he grabbed her and put her in the vehicle, and fearing what would happen if she told her parents, he then admitted that he strangled her in the truck and then dumped her body some seven miles away from her home, simply beside a road. Real classy guy. Then on Wednesday, it emerged that Mr. Horner was arrested shortly after the little girl vanished, has now been charged with additional offenses. Horner faces three additional counts of sexually abusing a child dating back to 2013 in Fort Worth, and his bail is set at $1.5 million. Athena's mother, Madeline Gandy, um, said that she hopes that her killer will be sentenced to death. If he's tried first on the child charges and then goes to the homicide cases, you know, who knows? He may just get it. It's Texas. Next, an update on the interior designer charged with murder. Well, didn't go so well for the uh, California interior designer that was because she was found guilty of killing her stepfather after finding nude photos of her on his computer. Now, prosecutors say that uh, Jade Jenks drugged Tom Merriman and strangled him on December 31st of 2020. A jury in her week-long murder trial deliberated a little more than a day and then returned a verdict of guilty of murder in the first degree. Now, Jenks pled not guilty to murder, but admitted that she was very upset when she found hundred, hundreds of nude photos organized by body part and um, photos that were taken with someone that she was dating when she was 16 years old. 
These were all found on her stepfather's computer when she was there cleaning his home. It's not exactly sure how those images got there, but they were. Weird and creepy for sure, but certainly not a defense to murder. Now, these photos were apparently consensual, uh, but like I said, they were taken by Jenks um, a decade earlier with her boyfriend. Now, Ms. Jenks' attorneys argued that uh, Merriman was an alcoholic who had often mixed his drinks and his sleeping pills, and there was really no evidence that he was in fact strangled. The official cause of death was acute intoxication by the sedative Zolpidem, which is a generic form of Ambien. Prosecutors, however, argued that uh, Merriam's death was no accident. This was murder by design. Get it? She's an interior designer. Murder by design. That's right. That's the argument the, the uh, San Diego County District Attorney made. And uh, prosecutors in their evidence revealed text messages that showed Jenks had picked Merriman up from the hospital. She was his caretaker on the day that he died. And there were text messages that said, quote, I just dosed the hell out of him. Stopping for whiskey, then at Dix Dixieland to stall. Let me know. One text was uh, allegedly sent by Miss Jenks. Jenks faces 25 years to life in prison and is set for sentencing on April 3rd. It'll be interesting when she's in custody if she can bring some you know, new life to this dingy little area known as her cell. Maybe she can add some color. Maybe she can do something with the feng shui. Who knows? Maybe she can do something. And then finally today, our dumb criminal of the day. Please meet James Lang. He was arrested after police responded to a 911 call. The caller reported that Mr. Lang threatened to shoot household members. Why, you may ask? Well, there apparently was a dispute between Mr. Lang and others there when he asked his parents for money so he could buy cans of aerosol spray to support his huffing habit. As the officers arrived, Mr. Lang sped away from the residence. A short vehicle pursuit ensued, but Lang ultimately returned to the home after losing a tire on his vehicle. Not exactly sure how that happened, but anyway, he returned home and officers conducted a felony stop. And of course they found a loaded nine millimeter handgun and around seven cans of dust off aerosol spray in the car. Maybe he just likes to get into those little nooks and crannies um, to make sure his car is really clean. I'm sure there's a legitimate excuse for that right there. Needless to say, and not surprisingly, Mr. Lang has an extensive criminal history and is currently on probation. He was also taken into custody and transported to jail where he is facing charges of fleeing and eluding law enforcement officers with emergency lights activated, aggravated assault with, in with intent to commit a felony, also domestic violence related since it was a firearm, and he was in possession of a firearm by a convicted felon, which of course resulted in him being detained on a probation violation as well. Just in time for the holidays. Congratulations there, sir. That's right, Mr. Lang, you are our dumb criminal of the day. All right, that's all we have for you today. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you next time on Crime Talk.